Oh, thank you. So it's my honor and my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Reverend Kusula Bhikshu. <laughs> Happy to be here. It's uh, winter solstice, change of seasons, shortest day of the year, significant to a lot of folks around this globe of ours. I was just thinking the other day about enlightenment and wondering if I was ever going to make it. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a daunting task when you think about it, because what is it? You know, everybody talks about it, some people try to define it, and yet it turns out we're all sort of stuck with a definition that may or may not apply to the concept of enlightenment. So let me tell you a little bit about what I've come to understand it is, and why I may or may not ever achieve it. When I started, I started reading books and listening to people. And most people have an opinion about everything and they were happy to share it with me and and I was reading all these books and some were esoteric and some were theological some were poetic all trying to wrap their words around this around this thing called enlightenment and and it worked for me for a while. I had a definition in my head, and I had a plan and a goal, and I found a path to take me in that direction. And, and the more I walked on this path, and the more I understood what it was, the further away I got from enlightenment. I was going in like the wrong direction because I had an intellectual understanding and, and not, a, not an intuitive or physical realization of it. In the Zen tradition, they say the finger pointing at the moon is never the moon. And I was looking at the finger. It was a nice finger. <laughs> Unlike some I see on the freeway. <laughs> but that's not it. That's not where we go. That's not what it's all about. So then I found a meditation center and I started to meditate. And, and this, I thought to myself, was the way. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to sit for hours at a time. And then I'll be sitting for weeks at a time and months at a time. And one day, all that sitting will pay off. And I will be enlightened. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. I'm not sure if anybody would hire me because I was or wasn't enlightened. And then I found Dogen. Dogen is a 12th century monk from Japan who started the Soto Zen tradition. As a young man, he went to China, found an enlightened monk who trained him, taught him, and it's said that Dogen became enlightened. And he went back to Japan and started the Soto Zen school. And and there's a wonderful book I've been reading called The Essential Dogen, Shambhala Press. And, and this is what Dogen said about meditation. Meditation, zazen. Now the word zen means meditation. It's the Japanese word for meditation. 
So zazen would be sitting in meditation as opposed to walking in meditation or standing in meditation. Zazen is the Dharma gate of enjoyment and ease, an intimate expression of the unity of all life as it manifests in human form. Now what that meant to me was if I'm sitting in meditation, I'm sitting in enlightenment. And when I'm not sitting in meditation, I'm not enlightened. When I'm sitting in meditation, I can, I can hold all the precepts a monk or a nun takes in their ordination and not break one of them. And as soon as I get up off the cushion, I'm doomed. So I started to meditate, and I started to see that there were moments of self-transcendence. Now, I like self. I think self is good. I think we need self, and we should appreciate the fact that we have one. But some say about self, it's a good tool and a horrible master. And if I can use self in my journey to enlightenment, I should. But how about if self prevents my enlightenment? How about if this thing that I cherish keeps me alive every day, tells me what I like and don't like, gives me opinions, allows me to criticize, this little thing called self, how about if that's the problem? And I can remember back in the 1980s saying to myself, Maybe it's all about killing the self, and then I'll be free from the self, and then I'll have no obstacles ahead to achieve enlightenment. But how wrong was I? Because a lot of people lose self along the way. Sometimes we call it Alzheimer's. And you know what? Life doesn't work very well without one for a human. Now, I take care of cats. Little cats have a cat self. Dogs have a dog self. But humans have an amazing self. And I thought to myself, if I am sitting in meditation and find those moments of transcendence where I go beyond self, that might be a portal into the realization of enlightenment. So I continued to sit, and I found on occasion that I went beyond self. And it was really cool. And then self would take credit for it. <laughs> but I suppose that's to be expected. And I continued to sit, and I continued to sit and still do today. It doesn't end, it continues. And what I came to understand is one night you'll go to bed and the next day somebody else will wake up. Whoa! Now you have to introduce yourself. <laughs> Wonder why the other guy decided to drop out of the process, and, 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 and now you have this little incremental growth 
that occurs through meditation that at one point in your practice allows you to come to a place of enlightenment. You go back home. It's the path to going home. The interesting thing about this path is you're never home alone. Now you may, at this point, decide who's there with you. I was talking to a Carmelite nun one time, and she said, in our meditation practice, we get to these really subtle places as well. Stillness, peace, quietude, but we notice in the corner, someone's there. We call him God. I said, as a Buddhist, we go to those places and no one's there. <laughs> if there would be somebody there, it would freak us out. <laughs> so the Buddhist kind of enlightenment, going back to the source, if you will, finding home again, being embraced by the universe, however you want to describe it, simply means this according to Buddhism and the Mahayana Zen tradition. Enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Easy for me to say. But what that means in a, just a basic way is that we have always been and always will be connected to everything all the time. We have never stood independently. It is an illusion created by self. That the true nature of human experience is this family of everything, from the dogs to the cats to the trees to the moss, they are us and we are them. Unfortunately, you can't live there very long because we have stuff to do. Self has stuff to do. I'm doing laundry later on. Not because I want to, but because self says it's very important. So I can't sit in peace and bliss and enjoy the freedom of being interconnected and interdependent very long because it doesn't lead to anything positive on this earth according to most people. That sitting in meditation for a lot of folks is just a big waste of time because there is stuff to do. And we should be doing it. Well, I agree. But it's in how you do it. Ramdas says it's a dance. It's a dance between the relative and the ultimate. That we have one foot in our relative reality, and we have one foot in our ultimate reality, and we need to choose which is the most appropriate in our experience of the present moment. Sometimes we run into category error where we're thinking one thing and doing another, assuming everything's gonna work out, but we're not in the relative and we're not in the ultimate. We're lost and confused. I love this 
definition of enlightenment, which is in the book, The Essential Dogen. An enlightened person is someone who embodies the deep understanding of non-duality while acting in accordance with ordinary boundaries, not being bound to either realm, but acting freely and harmoniously. So we have this non-dual ultimate awareness of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all things. We have this relative, separate, alone feeling. It's us against the world. Both are necessary. The one that's optional for most humans is the non-dual. The one that's mandatory for most humans is the dualistic interpretation of the present moment experience of our life. And we spend years in school, we read hundreds if not thousands of books to intellectually understand our place in the universe and our relationship to everything else. But that is a separate way of looking at things. It doesn't lead to peace and harmony. It doesn't even lead to goodwill because it's mine not theirs. So what happens when you have this experience? What happened when the new guy woke up that day and, and says to you, hey, we got work to do. Now what kind of work are we going to be doing? We're going to be working for the other, for all the people in the world. We're going to become bodhisattvas, Buddhist saints, who put others in front of themselves. On the way up, I was listening to NPR. I often do that to get depressed. <laughs> <laughs> and what they said was amazing to me. I was watching the news last night, and they were, had, of course, film of all the shopping centers. And everybody is so happy and they're carrying bags and people are saying, oh, the recession is over. And then NPR says there are 58,000 homeless people in Los Angeles County right now. And you just go, wow, look at this paradox of joy and happiness and, and sadness and aloneness, sometimes even desperation and how the self, how the ego, can rationalize and make that normal. There are always going to be homeless people. We never have enough. The big sale is on. The more I spend, the more I save. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> but you know what? If you don't spend anything, you save a lot. So this idea of the bodhisattva comes out of this direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Now you no longer will ever have a day off. That you will look around and see all the people who are suffering because they are separate and they are desperate. And you have come home to the wholeness of enlightenment. You now have the capability to go in various situations and not have to be anything other than helpful. 
that you can make a difference in everything you do and every place you go because you see this interconnectedness and interdependence. The Bodhisattva vows, I will save all sentient beings. I'll work on saving all sentient beings. If there's one human who is suffering, I as the Bodhisattva will relieve, reduce, and ultimately end that suffering for that person. And we've been doing this now for 2,600 years as a Buddhist. And has suffering been reduced in the world? Doesn't seem to be the case. We seem to be suffering in new and fantastical ways. It's just amazing how many ways humans can suffer. And, and so as you come to this realization that you are part of the solution, because now you have a unique perspective, you now are going to be doing this lifetime after lifetime. The end of this life, according to Buddhism, leads to the next life. And then you find your dharma and your practice and your meditation cushion and you have that experience again and now you see all sentient beings are suffering. And you go, wow. Now, does that mean you have to suffer as well? No, not at all. In fact, you're going to have a really good sense of humor about it. You're going to be able to see the paradox in all these different situations. And in paradox, we find humor. For instance, I've said this before, but it's one of my favorite paradoxes. The guy goes to Yosemite and asks the, the, the gamekeeper up there about bears because he's deathly afraid of bears. He doesn't want to see a bear. And there are plenty of bears in Yosemite. And so he asks, what do I do when I see a bear? Do I climb a tree? Do I run? Do I stay in place? And, and he said, no, what you need to do is you need to run as fast as you can. Now, he thinks about this for a moment and realizes that a bear can run twice, if not three times, as fast as he can. So why would the forest ranger, in this case, ask him to run? So he says, if the bear is going to catch me, why should I run? And the forest ranger says, it gives you something to do before the bear kills you. <laughs> And so life is sort of like that for us, huh? Life gives us something to do before it kills us. <laughs> and the good thing about being a human being is we get to choose what we're going to do. And sometimes our choices are right on, and sometimes they need a little modification. So I have found in my exploration of the Dharma my attempt to sit on a regular basis, transcend this little guy who's speaking to you right now, to come to this place of enlightenment and the interconnection and interdependence of all phenomena that I need to really be skillful because I start to see things other people don't see and I don't want to bum people out. Only if I'm invited to speak. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here we are in this holiday season, and it's glorious, it's wonderful. We even have Enlightenment Day. The Buddhists in December have Enlightenment Day, so we have our own little celebration that we do. But we have the birth of Christ, we have capitalism, we have the winter solstice, we have so many things to be thankful for. And yet there's much work to do. So we can't rest on our laurels, we need to get up off the cushion, we need to go out into the world, and we need to make a difference. And we can start by not adding to the suffering. And I was asked today, why didn't I bring my ukulele? I said, well, I don't play very well, and I don't sing very well. It doesn't stop me, though. <laughs> but I didn't want to inflict it on you and create more suffering. <laughs> so as we become skillful and wise, we start to see there are things we can do, and more importantly, a lot of things we don't need to do anymore to make this place, to make this world more comfortable for our family, which is everything and everyone. Now, I did bring my harmonica today. <laughs> Because I always get the Christmas blues. <laughs> and I can't think of a better way of expressing those Christmas blues other than through a, a harmonica. So here we go. Thank <laughs> you.